This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We've uh, been talking about bus transit and uh, the service that we get here in the Hamilton area for a long time now. Not just about LRT, but about the bus service as it is right now, the bus service as it is projected to be. And uh, we've gone on a number of different tangents on this topic, but uh, it was a heated discussion at Hamilton City Council yesterday about this. As uh, they started talking about things like absenteeism, they started talking about low morale, they started talking about the fact that some drivers, when people do call in sick, don't even want to work the overtime, which uh, when I had Dan McKenna, the general manager of Public Works on the other day, uh, motivated me to ask him, look, at, you, got, you got a problem here with staff? Uh, and he seemed to indicate that there's, uh, there's something going on here. Well, that was one of the many topics that were discovered and discussed yesterday at Hamilton City Council as uh, the HSR found some pretty tough questioning. The management of City Hall uh, decided to get down in front of City Council yesterday, and it was uh, it was pretty raucous, to tell you the truth. Absenteeism uh, is 19%. Transit director says that's uh, to blame for unprecedented amount of bus cancellations. I just got a list just uh, 10 seconds ago on Twitter here about the bus cancellations. That's not encouraging transit. When you say, hey, oh, by the way, the bus that usually takes is not running today or it's going to be late. Chad Collins, City Councilor for Ward 5, was uh, part of that discussion yesterday. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Chad. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Bill. Yourself? Good. Uh, listen, you you know the, 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 the lay of the land here. This has been an ongoing problem for quite some time. Uh, to their credit, uh, we can talk about past history and that City Councils probably didn't put the money towards transit they should have. That seems to be turning around. You've dedicated an awful lot of money uh, mm-hmm. towards public transit over the last number of years, Chad, at budget time. But this report that you're dealing with right now pretty much indicates that uh, you're slipping backwards here. You're not making progress. Well, it's, it is strange, and then that's why we had a number of questions yesterday. And, you know, when you traditionally, Bill, when we see service disruptions, it can be chopped up to a number of things historically. Uh, sometimes when we're in contract negotiations, um, you know, there's, there's um, a fractured relationship between the parties, between management and between the union. And we can see at times during those talks that uh, there are service disruptions. And, and that's not the case here because we're, we're a ways away from the next contract. I think we're just over a year away from uh, meeting at the table. Sometimes it can be chalked up to resources or lack thereof, as you've referenced. And uh, the HSR, and, and you've covered our budgets quite extensively over the last uh, couple of years, um, the, the HSR, at a time when we've been cutting staff in almost all areas of the organization, is one of the only areas where we've increased staff, and the budget numbers are well beyond um, other departmental numbers. So the figure we talked about yesterday was the levy increase for HSR, um, in terms of their percentage, has been 35% over five years. So 7% a year, that's a, a fairly healthy increase in the budget. So, mm-hmm. and, and to add to that, again, from a capital perspective, we've seen all levels of government invest heavily in transit, federal government, provincial government, and of course, it's a cost-shared formula, and so we're in on that as well. So it's certainly not for our lack of resources. Let so me ask you about something. When Dan McKinnon was on the show the other day, the general manager of Public Works, and I, I asked him about this and, and about the absenteeism numbers, and, and I said, look, Dan, I said, we're not in flu season. It's not like there's a big epidemic of something going on where people are calling in. You can say, well, I guess that's to be expected. Uh, so that's not the rationale for it. As you just mentioned, I know sometimes that calling in sick can be a tactic during bargaining sessions. Yep. You're nowhere near that time right now. Correct. So, But I said, when you see that 
high n- number for absenteeism, plus the refusal of the existing workers that do go into shift to say, I'm not working any overtime, they're making a statement. The, 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 right. some, the workers are saying something to management here. I, you, clearly, you see that. I'm not so sure that management does. Yeah, and that's where the center, the questions yesterday focused on and centered upon. It, it was really, you know, the canary in the coal mine are, as you just mentioned, at, when absenteeism is up, you know, something's going on in the workplace. When grievances are up, and we did hear yesterday in response to my question, you know, what are grievances like? And they're very high now. They probably, you know, they've spiked just as absenteeism has spiked. And so it, it really is the canary in the coal mine scenario where you start to see these signs and signals. And, you know, people turning down overtime and those types of things. And it's, it is having a direct impact, certainly, on service. And, you know, for as much as, uh, you know, we would consider HSR an essential service, we can't have people sitting at the curb wondering one day to the next whether they're going to get to work on time, school on time, their appointments on time, and what have you. So that, those really were the, the issues for council. And, and I think what we learned without breaching confidentiality, because we did go into camera to speak about identifiable individuals. Uh, it is an HR issue, and um, it is a labor relations issue right now for us, of course. Um, I think what we found is that, um, you know, if there's a culture shift here, and some of my colleagues used that word, you know, there's ways and means to go about making change, and sometimes change can be difficult to implement. Uh, but, you know, it, it's very clear in terms of what the rules of engagement are. We work under and with a collective agreement. And it's not new, so it's, you know, the HSR has been around for a long time, and our, our staff certainly know what the, 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 um, what's contained in the agreement and what the rights of our employees are. And so our focus yesterday was on trying to repair the relationship and get us to a point where, um, you know, we have great faith in our leadership. Mr. Murray and certainly Mr. McKinnon have done a tremendous job over the years, and, um, and certainly, you know, our, some of our HSR staff have been terrific as well. And, of course, Mr. Tuck on the other side and his membership, um, you know, we've had a good working relationship. The recent decision with the LRT and allowing and requesting that HSR drivers operate that, there's a long-standing successful history at the HSR. And so something needs to occur between those two parties, management and the union, to repair whatever um, deteriorating relationship exists right now. It just... It can't continue, and, um, you know, for the reasons that we just talked about, there's an impact on the user, and we've invested a lot of money to ensure that the HSR is improving and not deteriorating. Let me and, ask and you those, the, Let me ask you yeah. the question that's on everybody's mind in the community, especially transit users, though. And I, and I, I say this with the full understanding that as a counselor, you have to walk a fine line here because mm-hmm. uh, there are legalities here, there are uh, HR issues here, and, and you don't want to get on the wrong side of that. That's happened too many times in the past with other counselors, and I, I, I don't want to put you in that predicament. But, but... There have been changes in senior management within the HSR in the last little while. Is that a factor in why these guys are so peed off? Well, it, it, we've certainly heard anecdotally from from some of our HSR staff. I mentioned yesterday, I've you know I reached out to some of my constituents who work at the HSR to to kind of get the inside track in terms of where we're at with this. And the, and as I mentioned, there seems to be a fractured relationship, and and you could probably chalk it up to style, Bill, if to be, you know, um, correct about the situation and without, again, breaching confidentiality, it's maybe the way we're trying to implement change. Um, when you see grievances spike as they have, uh, when you see people calling in sick because, you know, they're, they just don't want to go to work uh, because it's not, a in their mind, a healthy working environment. Um, and when you see absenteeism, the, the numbers to which you just mentioned, 19%, there are no comparables 
uh, in Ontario or, or elsewhere that we could find that are at that level. And so HSR, historically, to be fair, they, they have been a little bit higher than our corporate average, but nowhere near this number. And, so you, and your corporate average is pretty high. So, so you're talking about this one over and above an, uh, uh, an absentee ratio for the rest of the staff that's already troubling, to say the least. That's right. And so our council yesterday, our focus really was, you know, what can we do internally? Um, we have that, as I described it, that, that um, scenario where maybe it's not you, it's me um, discussion. And we turned to our management team and said, you know, this can't continue. And you need to reach out to Mr. Tuck. And, and to be fair, over the last couple of days since this received media attention, both in The Spectator, on your show and elsewhere, um, the parties have uh, met. And they've made some progress in terms of finding some mechanisms and some opportunities to ensure that when somebody does call in sick, we're going to have that safety net we have traditionally have in place to ensure that somebody is driving the bus or performing another role at the HSR to ensure that the system is working properly. So we're making progress. Uh, we're certainly not there yet. And, um, you know, if this was deteriorate any longer, it really then would lead into those contract negotiations that I spoke of earlier, which, you know, no one wants to see that occur. We, we, we want the parties to come together and, and have a, a peaceful working relationship. We can't always be on the same page. And, you know, and that's why the collective agreement is there and the option to grieve when, when someone feels that it's not being followed. But at the end of the day, we need to ensure that the service is there and it's predictable and that when people need to get to work, school or an appointment or otherwise, they're going to get there on time. The, the concern here, obviously, are, are the solutions and the Band-Aid solutions. And I know that staff uh, came back to you and, and, and asked for a, uh, an amendment now so that they could ask some of the drivers to, go, to work up to 68 hours a week. Uh, but that's, you, as, Chad, you've been on council a long time. That's a short-term solution, and it's probably yeah. not very smart because you're getting to health and safety issues where you're talking about driver fatigue and other issues at that stage. Clearly, really clearly you need a long-term solution here. Correct. It's really a Band-Aid bill at this point. It's trying to bridge that gap and... And again, you know, I think yesterday was the first opportunity we've had. Um, you know, it, once in a while we do receive complaints from, from our, our, um, our riders, our, our residents, to say, you know, the bus was late or the bus didn't show up. And those incidents traditionally um, have been few and far between historically. But over the last couple of months, um, and especially in the last couple of weeks, it was almost every area of the city was affected by buses not showing up. So... We, uh, I say that yesterday was a good first start. Um, I, I understand that, you know, we're not just talking about the HSR management now. We're talking about our senior management team in terms of Mr. Murray and Mr. McKinnon and others who will involve themselves in this situation and try to find ways and means in which to get us back to a point where it is predictable, on time, and they're showing up. It's got to be frustrating for you on council, though, uh, given the fact that there seems to have been an about face and now a, I think a pretty intense commitment by council to try to do something about public transit. And, and maybe the LRT discussion sparked that, but it's, it's, it's a discussion that started even before LRT, and that's, that's, that's the good news thing. But just when that seems to be happening, just when the money starts to be flowing to that, and now the provincial government seems to be kicking in, now yeah. you're putting out a fire on the other side of this thing. And it just seems as if every time you try to take one step forward, it's two steps back. It is frustrating. There's no doubt about that. And, and that's on top of, and you and I had a discussion a couple of months ago about just declining ridership in general, not just at the HSR, but for transit authorities across Canada and North America. And we're still trying to get to the bottom of, you know, why that's occurring. And, you know, there have been talks about ride-sharing programs and, and its popularity amongst uh, millennials. Um, there have been talk about certainly 
um, you know, we've seen gas prices go up and down, and so that... Uh, and those are all factors, and so yeah, is Uber, yeah. but, but you know, the overriding factor that hit you guys right in the face yesterday is if the service sucks, they're not going to use it. Absolutely. It needs to be on-time, predictable, and, you know, we're, we're making those investments for a reason. We, we're not just doing it because we like transit. We're doing it because there are all kinds of benefits to having people use public transit from an environmental perspective, from a transportation perspective, you know, it's, it's great when we can get more cars off the road. And, um, you know, just the fact that, you know, we're, we're trying to get us to a point where our numbers are comparable to other municipalities. I mean, we, we're trying to, to get people out of their vehicles and on the bus and, um, you know, in, in preparation for whatever higher level order transit system we have in the future. Um, we just need to continue to try to make uh, efforts. And, to see us invest heavily, both on the capital and the operating side, and then not see the fruits of our labor as a result, um, is discouraging, to say the least. And, and I think at some point, maybe higher levels of government start to question whether or not there is merit in investing in a transit system that's going in the other direction. So we don't want to reach that point. We want to continue to see the investments made from the federal and provincial governments because they lead to good things. Everybody's tightening their belts these days, cities, uh, all levels of government. We get that, obviously, because of some of the pressures that are on these days. But what, what Mr. Tuck has told us in the past, and, and I think part of the conversation yesterday at Council, Chad, mm-hmm. was that what Council or what City is doing here is they're trying to cover operating uh, ex- procedures here with overtime instead of hiring extra staff, because with extra staff, of course, comes increased benefit costs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a problem with the city? Well, I, I don't. I didn't hear Mr. Tuck's comments, but I I can say, Bill, that as part of the last number of years, the operating investments we've made include hiring new drivers. I don't have the list in front of me, but I you know I think we're into the dozens. We're not just talking about a handful of people. And so, as we've made those levy increases in terms of uh, putting additional buses on the road, you can't put you can't buy new buses and put additional buses in service without having people to drive them. And so we've increased our complement. And again, that is completely contrary to what we're doing in almost every other area of the organization. You you covered it last year. We cut, uh, you know, almost 100 management positions Mm -hmm. across the board. HSR was not one of those areas where where we experienced cuts. In fact, we went in the opposite direction and we have new new staff that we're hiring there. And that trend will continue over the next couple of years. Mike Zagarek just gave us a high-level budget presentation a couple of weeks ago. And in HSR, we'll be dedicating almost a half a percent, if memory serves me right, half a percent on the levy every year for the next, I believe it's three to five years or even beyond, just for transit. And that is not just to pay for the ongoing um, cost of living in terms of compensating our employees, um, it should be under the collective agreement, but that, those are transit enhancements as well. And that's something that council is going to have to grapple with through the budget process. But as I just mentioned, uh, over the last uh, five years, if I use that as the example, We've made those investments, and there has been no question in terms of what kind of resources are flowing to the HSR. Uh, to suggest it was a wholesome discussion yesterday, I guess it would be a massive understatement, but at least, as you say, you've got everything there on the table right now, and hopefully we mm-hmm. can find some resolution to this. Chad, thanks so much for the time. As always, great talking with you today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Ward 5 Councilor Chad Collins. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to talk about road safety. Ontario has a trucking problem. How do we fix it? Uh, it's uh, received an awful lot of action on social media. I'm glad it has because we need to have this conversation here in the province of Ontario. We're referring, of course, to the horrific crash on uh, the 400 the other day, uh, just south of Barrie and the uh, the Bradford area. 
Uh, three people dead so far, although that number may rise as they go through some of the wreckage. 14 vehicles uh, involved in the crashing. It's uh, still closed. Northbound Highway 400 is still closed right now as police comb through the scorched mess of twisted metal looking for other victims. If you've seen the aerial pictures of the site, it's uh, it's horrific. It's just terrible. It's this, The road is scorched and black from the smoke, from the, the fires, the fireballs. The surrounding area, of course, the the grass is dead now because of the oil leaks and the, the just a, a terrible, terrible mess. And, of course, there are still some remnants of some of the pieces of the vehicles that were involved in this. Uh, what we need to talk about here is safety. And, and what I find interesting about this, in a case of rather significant foreshadowing, just a couple of days before this accident occurred on the 400, the commissioner of the OPP, actually went public. Uh, Vince Hawks uh, spoke about the alarming number of fatal collisions caused by what he called inattentive truck drivers. And those numbers are significant. In this year alone, in 2017, since January 1st of this year, right up until, like, well, probably the middle of this month, or middle of October, 5,000 transport truck-related crashes. 5,000. That's just in Ontario. 67 people have died. And that doesn't include the number, by the way, from uh, the accident on the 400 the other day. And nobody is suggesting, by the way, of those 5,000 that truckers are, are culpable in all 5,000. That's not what we're saying, but they're involved in them. And the OPP who did those investigations say that uh, distracted driving by truckers or fatigue by trucker drivers was a common theme in many of them. So what do we do? How do we address this? What do we do about trucker safety? Trucks are not going away, nor should they. They're an important part of the economy in this province, and as a matter of fact, right across North America. They are used to move goods back and forth. And yes, there are other ways to do this, but eventually, no matter what you do, even if you use rail, even if you use sh- short sea shipping, anything like that, even if you use air travel, at some point, that stuff's probably going to go on a truck. But we need to do something about ramping up safety. To talk about that, we're pleased to welcome Steve Foxcraft to the program. He is the Senior Vice President with Fluke Transport, uh, located here in Hamilton, of course. Steve, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. No problem, Bill. Good to be with you. Let's uh, talk a little bit about that, Steve. Look, at uh, Fluke has been in the business for a long, long time. Uh, you've got a number of trucks all over the place. We see Fluke Transport trucks everywhere. As, as a, an operator of a facility like this and an, and an enterprise like this, uh, you guys must just shudder when you see something like what happened the other day on the 400. That's right. We're like the rest of everybody in the public, uh, remorseful, but also looking at it and in disbelief sometimes with that one, where we see the aerial shots and the road literally melting away underneath. It's going to have to be reconstructed. But some of the points that you touched on, Bill, are interesting, and driver fatigue and uh, inattentive inattentiveness of the drivers as well and that's what a lot of our drivers deal with daily around the gta and that is the drivers they need more time and distance to drive safely and to have a stopping distance and often you see passenger vehicles darting in front of them and it takes that time and distance away and the truckers constantly you'll see it on the right hand lane they get shuffled back they get shuffled back and I'm glad to hear you say they're involved in a lot of accidents, but not necessarily they're the cause of it all the time. But just like the whole, the percentages of public, there's driver distraction at the driver level of truckers as well as passenger vehicles, too, and it's a problem. And by the way, Steve, we checked on that. I went to the Ontario Trucking Association website earlier this morning, 
And and the numbers are actually down. I mean, when you look at the amount of truck traffic that's on the road, and we're talking about 18-wheelers, transport trucks here, uh, there's a 66% decrease in accidents uh, that uh, that well, where truckers were culpable in this. So so obviously the your your provincial association is doing something about that, and the numbers are down. But I mean to go back to the old idea about one is one too many. But I mean when we see that there are uh, over five thousand accidents involving trucks right now, uh, we've got a problem now. And I know the OPP says they're going to do whatever they can to crack down. And we'll get to them later on. We reached out to Kerry Schmidt from the OPP, but he's awfully busy right now with, with that incident up on the 400. So we'll get to him on a later show. But let's talk about how the industry deals with this. And I know that there have been a number of initiatives that start with training, I guess, and, and a number of other things that you are doing to try to mitigate that number. That's right. We we have our drivers trained. We come in, we, we bring them in, we ensure that they're trained all the time. Every year we do that. Uh, but it's also at the post-secondary level. It would be great to see a course um, where kids could go on. Like, you don't see kids growing up nowadays saying, I want to be a truck driver. They still see, I want to be a police, I want to be a firefighter, that type of thing. And I think it would be nice to have it at the post-secondary at, uh, level, a course where you could go and be trained to be a truck driver. And in one year or two years, you get a certificate and off you go. If you want that training nowadays, you have to pay for it and attend a private uh, teaching facility. Where are the drivers coming from these days? Because like you said, there's, oh. a, there's, not a, there's more trucking going on as much as ever, if not more than ever these days. And obviously you need more, more units on the road these days, Steve. But I mean, it's a matter of finding trained personnel to be able to handle these things. That's right. We have a tough time, and a lot of times we go within our own driver community to reach out to their friends, to their family. Uh, one of the good areas of us being a multicultural society is people that come in, immigrants that come in, and they're looking for uh, a job. This is a job that's attractive to them. They don't need a lot of training. Like I mentioned, it'd be great if we had post-secondary training. But unfortunately, right now, they don't need a lot of training. They can get on the road quickly and earn a decent living. Um, part of earning a decent living, though, is the hours aren't attractive for many. It is long hours. It's early shifts. It's late nights. It's weekend work, so on and so forth. So it's not a job that a lot of kids nowadays that grow up in a nice home say, oh, I want to go and work. At, uh, I want to get up at 4 in the morning and go into work. Let's talk about that and, and about the working conditions, okay? Because I think that's an important factor. You, you know, Steve, that for all the years you've been involved in the industry right now, the, the, the concern that was raised a number of times for many, many years was, was look, at time is money in the trucking industry. It's a, it, there's a great deal of pressure to get that stuff to market on time in a timely fashion. And, and, and because of that, uh, truckers back in the day were complaining about the fact that, well, we've got to hurry, we're behind schedule. Uh, we got to stay awake. I've got to be on the road for longer than I thought I was going to be. So they were popping pills, drinking coffee, getting overtired. Is is that still a problem? That still is a problem. And luckily, the government has identified it. And we're very close now to have it regulated uh, where all truckers will have to operate with electronic logs. We will get rid of the days where you have a piece of paper, like a little booklet, where you jot down your hours and you can always doctor that, right? Bill, if you get pulled over by the MTO, you, they say, give us your log of how long you've been working today. Well, you can change a six to an eight pretty quickly if you want to. And those, those, are, those, uh, those are those trucking stations we see on the side of the highways, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And, and, and truckers are required to pull into those, right, when they're open? That's right. And they have roving checkpoints. And they check a lot for the weights, right? They check a lot that you're hauling the proper weights and all that, too. But they also do other uh, other checkpoints at that at those locations as well. And that's one thing that I think we could do, especially in the GTA, because we have renegade outfits out there that are going without proper licensing, without proper insurance. But these guys have it down to a science how to avoid the checkpoints because we just don't have enough of them in the GTA. And I think one of the things we could do, like when we want to get rid of drinking and driving, we have the ride programs, and they're random. And I think we could do that a little bit more with these checkpoints at random locations throughout. Uh, throughout our highways, throughout the GTA, throughout some of the the busier roads like Dundas Street and so on, and these people they they wouldn't be able to avoid them as much, and they'd still be checked, and they'd be caught. One of the problems that Steve that was explained to me, and I think we had this discussion uh, with you guys when uh, when the uh, provincial government was talking about uh, the institution of limiters on trucks, so that they wouldn't speed. Uh, and they said that that sounds like a great idea on the surface, but the downside is there are an awful lot of trucks on Ontario highways right now that aren't from Ontario. They're not registered here, so they, they, they don't have to do that sort of thing. Uh, so you've got really two sets of rules here. And the other ones uh, uh, from outside of the province, of course, uh, you know, are, can do what they want when they want. And that's not to suggest, by the way, that they'd all break the law, but it, it's a lot more difficult to try to track them or to try to maintain that sort of thing. So you've got some problems within the industry that need to be dealt with here. Right. And to be honest with you, Bill, especially in our GTA area, you don't see trucks in the left-hand lane. You don't see trucks speeding. It's more of a, I think the issue would be more of trucks needing the time and distance to safely stop and having passenger vehicles not realize that. I think when, when we're driving our cars day to day, if we cut in front of a truck, we think we treat it like we're just cutting in front of another vehicle that only needs so much time to stop. So I don't necessarily think that the speeding is an issue or trucks going fast is an issue. I think the driver fatigue can be an issue. We've, uh, we, three years ago, got ahead of the game. We knew this legislation was coming in. We put in onboard computers that track the, uh, the driver's uh, logs, hours of service, automatically. It can't be messed around with or anything and if everything if anything gets close to one of our drivers on the road where their hours or service are coming up it notifies us and we get them off the road so that's part of it driver fatigue and then of course the inattentiveness and we've all heard horror stories of passenger vehicles truckers you hear about people having laptops in their cabs watching netflix and so on and that's just bad apples and we got to get rid of them, whether in passenger vehicles or or transport trucks. How do you do that, though? That's just a, an interesting conundrum. And and your your point about speeding, I think, is well taken, Steve. I mean, I, I've seen it, and I know if I open the lines up right now, I'd probably get a lot of people calling. And said, "Oh yeah, I remember a time." And so do I. I mean, I, I've had I've had guys in eighteen wheelers right behind me on the four hundred three in the Hamilton area here, where all I can see in my rearview mirror are their headlights. Uh, and and that scares the daylights out of me when that happens. And they, yeah, they're going way damn too fast. But I don't. It doesn't happen very often. But it it happens once. It's enough to scare the daylights out of yeah. when something like that goes on. But the other things, the distracted driving and things of that nature. I and I as an example, I guess I want to use. Uh, remember a few years ago, we had this terrible situation where we had tri- tires flying off of trucks, and there were a number of fatalities. Uh, and, and I know that they cracked down on that. The ministry said they were going to do some stuff. But a lot of the the solution to that 
came from the industry itself and the self-policing that went on. Can you do that with things like distracted driving too? I love that. I, I, we have so many good drivers in our fleet right now, and they lead by example. And my own personal examples, when I'm on the highway, and we've all seen it, we've all gone by someone and you look over and they're texting, they're on their phones, they're doing whatever. In the last week, I have heard trucks honk their horns at these people. And I think that's a great uh, way to police it itself. Um, it means they're attentive to it. It means they're uh, attuned to what's going on around them and th- their surroundings. And I just like seeing that. And it's just part of society. I love going along the QE and seeing the signs above uh, warning us against uh, texting and driving. You know, it's got to be something that the public has to be in tune to because trucks aren't going away. Generally, our roads aren't getting any uh, bigger. We, where are we going to do it? Like by the time we do the Upper Peninsula Highway, none of us will be around. So we're not going anywhere. We're getting um, more um, more trucks on the road, and we all have to pay attention to it. Because of that and because of the gridlock situation like that, uh, some of the people in the industry in the past have told me that there are times when, when truckers have to go, get back on the road. In other words, uh, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you don't see too many 18-wheelers on the road because they figure, I'm just going to get stuck in traffic, so they're probably off having coffee someplace or something. <laughs> but, that, but then there's that pressure when they get back on there, okay, now I have to make up for lost time. Is, is there a better way to, to, to schedule that you can maybe take some of the pressure off the truckers themselves? You know, it's not sometimes the truckers who dictate that. It's the customers of the truckers. Ah. You know, we, we go to where we got to go. But to that end, a lot of these places, a lot of distribution centers, so a big customer, they have huge distribution centers, and the trucker has to deliver according to the appointments and when they want their goods. But a lot of these places now, they work overnights and weekends. So a lot of the business believe it or not, because when you look at the roads between 9 and 5 or 8 and 5, you don't believe that some of the traffic has been diverted. But a lot of these places have recognized that, because what was happening, if they wanted you there for an 11 a.m. appointment to deliver deliver the merchandise, it was a hit or miss whether you could get there at 11 a.m. So a lot of these distribution centers, the customers are running shifts through the evening and overnight and requesting the goods then. And that's helpful to the trucker. But then you get into that whole, now you get back to when do drivers, how do we recruit drivers and say, okay, you're going to work nights for, you know, 30 years. Then we get into that, the driver shortage problem again, because it's not a, it's not a, a shift that a lot of people want to work. Absolutely. Uh, no easy solutions to this, but it's good to know that the industry themselves are, are cognizant of the problems and trying to find some solutions to it. Steve, thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. Always a pleasure, Bill. We'll see you soon. You betcha. Steve Foxcroft, Senior Vice President with Fluke Transport, talking about the uh, the problem and the, the concern I think we all have about traffic safety. And uh, to, to, to his point, a lot of the stuff that, uh, that the OPP talked about with truck drivers, about distracted driving and fatigue, uh, many drivers of, uh, of cars and, and, and vans and SUVs are guilty of the exact same thing. It's a common problem. And we all have to be more cognizant of that and more responsible about that. Uh, the investigation continues about what happened on Highway 400, about the causes of that, but uh, the early indications seem to be that somebody plowed in there because they either weren't paying attention or fell asleep or whatever the case may have been. That's avoidable. That's why I don't call them accidents. They're crashes, and they can be prevented. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. 
Well, there's a story a day, and it probably could be 10 stories a day, but we're just talking about celebrities here, about uh, sexual harassment uh, in the workplace, whether it's the entertainment workplace, the office workplace, can be anywhere, of course, because anecdotally we know that the stories continue to mount. Uh, UK Defence Minister Michael Fallon resigned this week uh, amid growing sexual harassment scandals. The head of uh, National Public Radio down in the States, very same thing, Brett Ratner, Dustin Hoffman, Kevin Spacey, Jeremy Piven, among some of the others, that have been accused and in some cases actually admitted to sexual harassment for so many times. And, of course, Harvey Weinstein. And the list goes on and on and on. Why then, why then do we not hear about the reports of this? A study released earlier this week suggested that 56% of women said, yes, they have been sexually harassed in the workplace at some time. 56%. Why do most of them not come forward? Well, there's another study that indicates exactly why. Fear of retaliation is keeping most Canadian women from actually coming forward and talking about sexual harassment in the workplace. We told you the story a week or two ago of uh, Susan Kent. Susan Kent, of course, is one of the cast members of This Hour Has 22 Minutes, the uh, drama, uh, comedy that's uh, on CBC, of course, uh, on Tuesday nights. Very funny lady, very talented actress and comedian. And she talked about this just after the Weinstein thing and said that, yes, she has been sexually harassed. And she mentioned and went into great detail about a couple of instances where it happened. And she said, but I let it go because I was afraid of the ramifications. Didn't want to get into the system because the system doesn't seem to work. And she says, way too many women just let it go. Is that changing? Should it change? Let's bring Chantel Goldsmith into the conversation. Chantel is a partner in Samir Fruit American, of course, LLP, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Chantel, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you on the show today. Hi, Bill. How are you? Good. Well, these numbers are troubling, uh, and we're hearing more and more like this. And, and for every, every you know, Kevin Spacey or Dustin Hoffman or Jeremy Piven we hear about, there are countless others that, uh, that maybe don't have the same celebrity status but are guilty of the same situations. I'd agree. I'd actually say that the numbers um, from the survey are actually low. I'd suggest that if you ask any woman in the workplace, they'd have a story of inappropriate conduct that they've experienced or that they, someone close to them has experienced. And, and the sad part about that is, first of all, that it happens. The second part is that the reaction when and those women are brave enough to do something about it. I mean, the uh, the young lady who uh, accused Dustin Hoffman of, of sexual harassment, of uh, constantly groping her during uh, the making of a movie. She was part of the production crew there. Just, I guess, I don't know what her role was, but it was a, a minor role there. And when she went to her superiors, and I know you know this story, Chantel, they simply said, look, put it's Dustin Hoffman. Let it go. Leave it alone. Put up with it. He's the star. You're the script girl or whatever you are. And, and that was it. That was how they dealt with it. And that happens way too often. Well, that's really inappropriate. And now in Ontario, we have laws that, that deal with that. So um, employers have an obligation to investigate under the Occupational Health and Safety Act um, any uh, claim of sexual harassment. But do they do it? Well, they have a legal obligation to, and they should be doing it. And it would be our advice as, as legal counsel to any employer client that a full investigation needs to be conducted. How do you how do you empower women or victims? And I shouldn't just include women, but I mean, you know, because there's a situation with Spacey too. But uh, in situations like, how do you empower them to actually say, "Yeah, I, I've got to do something about this. I've got to talk to somebody about this." It, it is difficult because um, oftentimes there's the fear of not being believed. There's also um, many times the 
the perpetrator is the owner or the boss who's doing it. So there's oftentimes nobody for them to actually be able to make the complaint to. And also there, there's a fear of repercussions. Um, although there is legislation in place, like I said earlier, and that does protect um, them from any sort of reprisal with respect to a complaint. But it still is a very difficult thing to for a woman to go through. Well, the Weinstein situation, I think, is a classic example of that. I mean, this this guy runs the operation. I mean, who do you complain to? Oh, exactly. And I mean, there's always still that mentality, especially in that industry, that the, the boys will be boys kind of mentality, right? I think that is an old-fashioned way of looking at things. But there's, there's still many more men in positions of power than there are women. That is changing. And the there also is always that power imbalance in the workplace when it is somebody who is the boss or the owner of the company versus the, the employee. How do, you, how do you get your head around that? There's two elements I want to talk about there. One is, is the boys will be boys situation. And, and even as late as some of the harassment claims that have been in the news lately, Chantel, we've still heard that attitude. It's not stated as such, but it's, it's there. It's implied. They're talking around that, that mindset. It's, it's really the old-fashioned way of looking at things. And I think that... Um, as more women are coming into positions of power, that will definitely be changing. Uh, but it is going to be a gradual process. And also it is industry-specific as well for a lot of it. For those more male-dominated industries, it's going to take longer for them to, to come to terms with that no longer being the mindset. I mean, you know, the, we heard it, for instance, from the entertainment standpoint, the, the, you know, well, there's the casting coach. In other words, hey, if you want to get ahead in this business, uh, you know, you know what you have to do. Uh, and you'd like to think that that's changed, although some of the stories we've heard lately indicate that there's still a long way to go there. But there's another element that's, that seems to be coming forth here, too, and that's women who have attained a certain amount of status, thankfully, uh, like a Susan Kent, of course, from CBC that we talked about just a minute ago, uh, that are still victimized in a situation like this. And, and it's not, hey, if you want to get ahead, it's, hey, if you want to hang on to what you got, you better shut up. It's very, very unfortunate. And when those kind of situations arise, it can cause a lot of um, health conditions as well. These people who are experiencing sexual harassment um, can suffer from depression, anxiety as a result of their toxic workplace. And the health is impacting um, the workplace generally as well, because there's oftentimes they'd have to go off on leaves and have severe health repercussions as a result. Very unfortunate. Well, and those are some of the physical and emotional ramifications that can come, and we need to, to spend a little more time talking about that as well. Uh, and, and I guess the realization that we're starting to face right now, Chantel, is this can happen anytime, anyplace. Uh, it, it can happen in the highest uh, you know, offices downtown Toronto, in Hamilton, uh, anyplace else. It can happen in, in, in a donut shop. I mean, we've had evidence of this going on everywhere else. Uh, how are how are people supposed to respond to that? I mean, even with the knowledge that they have the law on their side, which is a, a great news story, it's good to know, but it's it's getting that first step and understanding that, you know, I, I'm going to go forward on this. I don't want to lose my job uh, because there are some things that can happen, and, and I'm sure you've talked to clients that have been in a situation like this where they said, okay, they don't threaten to fire me, but all of a sudden instead of uh, 30 hours a week I'm getting 10, all of a sudden, I'm working the night shift, uh, all because I spoke up about something like this. Uh, there, there's a, there are things and punishments, I guess, that can happen in a situation like that that can be pretty harrowing and make a bad situation even worse. They can, and that's why there is the laws in place in order to respond to those kind of things. So, so there is the reprisal um, the free from reprisal provisions in the Occupational Health and Safety Act that really does serve to attempt to protect these employees when they make a complaint. I mean, obviously, um, unless that employee comes forward and, and makes a claim that 
suggest that they've been reprised. There's nothing that they can really be doing about it. They have to have the strength to come forward, and they have to have the strength to go and get um, proper legal advice about what they can do in these kind of situations. If uh, the phone rings in your office and somebody presents themselves in a circumstance like that, how do, how do you help them, aside from the presenting the legal situation to them or what or what's there for them, what the law provides for them right now? Uh, treating that individual as a, as a human being, not just as a client, as you guys do. Uh, obviously, you realize that there's more to this than just an allegation. Oh, definitely. So we try and obviously um, find out all of the facts pertaining to the incident. We give them some direction in terms of what they should be doing with the company in terms of making a formal complaint and what their um, rights are with respect to that complaint. So whenever there is a complaint, there has to be a formal investigation done by the company and the company has to provide a written report to both the complainant and the perpetrator or alleged perpetrator of the incident. So all of that has to take place. as well for these individuals, we try and suggest that if they have employee assistance programs, that they contact them immediately to try and get some um, uh, mental health support there. And if they're physically unable to, com- to attend work, they are often able to get sick leave benefits um, either from the company or through employment insurance through Service Canada. So there are a bunch of steps that can happen to protect these employees and that we can support them through this process. And, and obviously that goes through the company itself and HR, et cetera, like this. Uh, but you mentioned that everybody who's involved, including the complainant, gets an opportunity or to, to look at the final report, I guess, after there has been a, an investigation like this. Uh, did they have a, an opportunity to comment on that report as to its accuracy or the way that they saw things? So there is, that's part of the investigation. Okay. So after the reports have already been generated, they don't really get the opportunity to make comments on it. But um, during the investigation, they definitely should be having the rights to defend their actions if they're the perpetrator or um, tell their side of the story if they're the complainant. How does the process work? Uh, I mean, because we've seen what's happened in the courtroom. Let's let's cut to the quick here, where women have come forward with allegations, some of them against high-profile individuals. Uh, the Gomeshi case always comes up. That seems to be the, the, the watermark that a lot of us use because it was a very high-profile case for a lot of reasons. Uh, obviously because of the, the, the profile of the individual, uh, of Gaveshi himself. But I guess also about the, 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 I guess, startling revelation for many of us that as soon as one or two people came forward, all of a sudden there were some sub-stories about other things that went on in the workplace almost on a daily basis, uh, which many of us found quite disturbing as well. But at the same time, we know that once the, uh, the trial started, uh, the, uh, the way that things rolled out and the way that the witnesses uh, uh, were treated on the stand and, and it was, was somewhat disconcerting to others. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll pair that up, Chantel, with some of the other stories we've heard uh, in other courtrooms. Uh, you know, there's the famous judge, you should have kept your legs closed, so, and, and there have been others like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Just as recently as a couple of weeks ago, there was one I think out at the East Coast right now that was chastising the, the victim in a situation like that, saying, well, look at the way you dressed. Uh, you, you, you're almost insinuating that you're asking for it. Those sorts of stories, all you need to hear is one or two of them for the victims of, of sexual harassment to say, I don't think it's worth it. I'd agree with you. I think that's very unfortunate that that's coming from the bench. I don't think that that's the right um, the way the right position to be giving the the public either. And that is further that's putting us back and regressing us in terms of our progression and moderate, modernizing the boys will be boys mentality. And that's that's within the system itself. I mean, it's one thing to tell a victim that that hey, the system is 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 in place before you right now. There are laws in place for you right now. Uh, but there's a human element to this, and some of the people that are still in that system seem to be still living in the 19th century. I'd agree. 
Of course, it doesn't help, I guess, that the president of the United States is is one of them. But I, you know that. But that's I'm on. We had this discussion the other day with one of the other situations just after this happened, and you, the, I guess that it was basically around the Kevin Spacey circumstance, and they said, well, boy, that guy sure got his career ruined, and I said, not necessarily. You'd think so, but I mean, after those tapes about Donald Trump and the way that he t- suggested about where he touched women and things of this nature, you thought that would have ruined his political career, yet he's sitting in the White House right now, which tells us that as a society, uh, we, we've got some concerns here. I totally agree with you. I think that we need to to continue our progression of pushing forward that um, giving the strength to to individuals who are victims to come forward. To um, we have the legislation in place to try and push that. To, we have other um, avenues available in terms of support um, agencies that people can go to to get the the help and support that they need to make the complaints. But it is a very very difficult process. And with people like you said, like Trump in power, um, to to try and regress us further as a society is very, very unfortunate. Well, especially in the Trump situation, because these are not allegations. I mean, this was him on tape suggesting exactly what he wanted to do. Uh, so it was there for everybody. And and obviously a number of people in the United States that voted in last year's election simply said, well, we don't care. Uh, that, that does not demean his character in our eyes. And that's pretty scary. It is. And I would hope that that would never happen in Canada. Well, you'd hope not, uh, and and maybe some of the outcomes here. I mean, notwithstanding what happened with the in in the courtroom in the Gomeshi trial, uh, obviously from a professional standpoint, I guess he's paid a price, so maybe that's sending a positive message. Uh, yet it's it still seems as if there's an awful lot more to go. Let me ask you about from from on a personal note though. Sure. When you see the discussion that's happening right now because of some of these accusations and and how social media has responded to this and and there's the hashtag Me Too campaign. Is is that helpful in 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 creating and and moving the dialogue forward here? I personally think so. I think when people. Um, there's the crowd mentality, right? So when people see that others are brave enough to come forward, it gives them um, the strength that they need to also come forward and tell their story. And do you see that happening? I, I, I'm not necessarily talking about in your particular workplace, but I mean in the corporate workplace right now, where there's uh, there's there's a different attitude, of a, a greater respect for for female coworkers in situations like this that that they're treated uh, as equals as as opposed to the way that people like the Weinstein's and others would look at them. I think that there is a, a push towards that. Are we there yet and where I would like to see us? No, but I think that we're definitely on our way. Talk to us about what's going on in, in the Canadian system right now when we hear stories like this. Uh, the numbers that 56% have admitted that this has happened to them, uh, and I, I was interested in your reaction when I mentioned that number that you said that's probably underreported right now. Oh, well, for sure. I, I would suggest that if you ask any woman in the workplace, she will have a story. A story about miscon- inappropriate conduct that she's experienced in her life in the workplace. How does that help them or hurt them uh, in situations like that? It's one thing to admit it. It's another thing to say, okay, how do I deal with it? Because like like the Susan Kents and the, so many others uh, that don't report it when it happens to them right now, uh, it doesn't go away. You don't sweep it under the carpet, do you? I'd say that the best thing to do is to report it. You need to nip that in the bud right away, and those people need to... Um, know that what they're doing is inappropriate and wrong because if it's continued to to just be swept under the rug or ignored they're going to continue doing it as we've seen with Weinstein how many times or how many victims are there so those people need to to know that they can't continue to do that well hopefully it's sending the message and uh, and and maybe this is all a good thing i mean the numbers are here and uh, i've seen some of the pushback on social media as i'm sure you have Chantel from I assume males that are simply saying enough is enough already. Uh, you know, we, what are these people looking for? 
Uh, and I think what they're looking for here is justice. I think what they're looking for here is a safe working environment or living environment. And uh, the sad reality here, when we look at some of these numbers and these two reports that you and I are talking about this morning, is that we're not there yet. No, we're definitely not there yet. There's still a long ways to go. And, and I think that we do need to be clear, though, that it's not just females, though. There are lots of males who are sexually harassed in the workplace as well. It, it goes both ways. And I think that even for the, the male victims, I think it's even more difficult for them to be able to come forward um, because there are, there's a stigma associated with that, too, that males can't be victims in those kind of situations, which is completely false. And we have, of course, sexual assault centers. We have a number of different helplines in, in communities right across the province right now. Uh, for people, if they want to speak about this confidentially, uh, it's it's good to know that uh, that there are people that they can reach out to. Oh, definitely. And and if they do decide that they obviously want to seek legal action and legal advice in situations like that, uh, obviously there are there are people such as yourself that can can have that discussion with them about what their steps or next steps may be. Yes, definitely. They can reach out to us anytime. Chantel, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us on the program today. Thanks so much, Bill. You have a wonderful day. Take care, Chantel Goldsmith. Of course, she's a partner with Samfiru Tamarkin uh, LLP. Uh, talking about sexual harassment in the workplace. I mean, these numbers are really frightening. 56% of women, and, and as Chantel's already alluded, and we, we assumed it anyway, that that's underreporting. It's probably a much higher number. I, I hate to think of just how high, but touching, inappropriate touching, hugging, kissing. And I'll bet if you think about it right now, you see that in many workplaces almost on a daily basis. And, and maybe, maybe... It's not direct harassment. It has harassment, no matter what the case is, that, that people think they just have freedom to be able to, to grab somebody, to crest somebody, to kiss somebody, invading their space, whatever the case might be. And and maybe in the past people have always looked at that and said, oh, come on, I was just having fun. It's not fun. It's that mindset that we've talked about that we have to get our heads around. And just think of the impact it has on somebody else and on that on that other individual. Interesting discussion. Thanks so much. Always appreciate it. Your thoughts on this? Uh, B. Kelly at 900CHML.com and on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. And by the way, if you are in that circumstance, as Chantel described, where you do feel that there's something going on or has gone on, uh, reach out here in the Hamilton area, the Sexual Assault Center. You can call them anytime and talk confidentially about your situation. And uh, you'll get somebody who will listen to you. And sometimes that's the best first step. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.